Welcome to Talk Design, the show where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host. Having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Adrian Ramsey and I'm your host on Talk Design. I started this podcast because I wanted to share the journey of design that I've had and that many others have had. And I find it inspirational talking to people globally about what makes design tick and what makes design create a better world for others. My journey has taken me from clothing globally, women's swimwear, performance sportswear, mountaineering, yachting, all these kind of genres where each place I would learn more and more about different specifics and how clothing can support those. Also, I've worked in innovation as a systematic innovation trainer and worked with the aerospace industry as well as the marketing industry and the design industry. And all my years of design, still my favorite is the built structure and interiors and years of travel and discovery, I constantly look at what the emotions are that are created by the built space. I consider myself a student of design for my whole life and will go on that way. Some of the things that I do to support this is my podcast and then workshops and masterclasses where I teach people about trends and design thinking and tours where I take people on tour with me and we go and discover different points of architecture or interior design globally. I always think that when you're passionate about something, one of the things that you should do is is you should share it. And so creating the podcast was my way of sharing my enthusiasm and the enthusiasm of others and their passions around design with you. I hope you really enjoy it. And I ask you, would you please drop us a line? Tell us what you think. Tell us what got you excited. It's so inspiring when we get messages from our listeners that tell us about the things that shifted in their life because of who they listened to. And it gives me the inspiration to dig deeper and find more people that I can bring to your ears so that you live a better design life. My guest on Talk Design today is Ray Calabro, and Ray is a principal in Seattle at Bolin, Skowinski and Jackson. Now, this firm is a large, I say large, it's a a multifaceted firm that ranges right across America with many offices and tackles all kinds of projects from high-rise to residential places. And as Ray and I have just been talking about, you know, budgets of big and budgets of small They are very multifaceted. What their background, and of course, many awards won. Ray is a fellow of the AIA. There is plenty of history and depth in this firm. Ray and I have met several times and have the most fascinating conversations. It always drops into some sort of depth that is the depth of discovery and trying to put words around feelings. And I'm sure that whatever we come up with today will be a great listen for all the listeners. 
but we will post all Ray's socials and things like that so that you can follow and check out their work. If you don't know the firm and you will discover a joy and a massive like portfolio of things that are created with heart and soul and love, no matter how what size they get to, there's an intimacy to what happens in their design. Ray, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Adrian. It's a pleasure to be here. It is such a pleasure. I did have the pleasure for everybody listening to, of being in Seattle with Ray about a month ago, I would say. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were planning on recording, but we just got lost in conversation. <laughs> and I was... Uh, it's I, a pattern. It is a pattern, yeah. <laughs> I did have this pleasure of being in their offices and... Ray taking me through multiple projects as we walked around pin boards and taking me down little rabbit hole journeys of why things became the, the way they did. And it was, I can think of so many bits of those conversations. It was the most fascinating thing. I've visited lots of offices over the years and also, I like to call them studios more than offices. And also, um, spoken with many architects and many interior designers and it's not very often that I get to get to this level of conversation and thinking and find the likeness in it it's not as often as I would love so Ray thank you you're welcome I would like to start out with some really simple questions for the people who don't know you yet and even the ones who do, you might have some surprises. With that is, why architecture? You know, you're a talented guy. You could have done anything. You could have gone <laughs> and been a photographer. You've got lots of creativity. You've got business yeah. drive. You've got all these things. You you know, you, you've got this package of it. Why architecture? What, what went wrong or what went right that made you land on that? Well, I think it's, for me anyway, it's what went right. You know, my, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the early 1970s. And from the time I was a very young, from a very young age, my parents discovered that I could draw and draw very well, I think. And so my father was a geography teacher and my mother was an administrative person and they had the foresight to sign me up for art classes at the Carnegie Museum of Art in downtown Pittsburgh, which was about 25 miles drive from our house, maybe 30 miles. And so I, I had this early experience of being kind of immersed in the art world and design world and this capacity to kind of draw that I, I, I didn't necessarily know what I would do with it. I just knew that I really enjoyed it. And visiting the Carnegie Museum at that time, they had a building by Edward Larrabee Barnes was like the modern edition in the seventies, late seventies. And I remember walking in there the first time these massive walls of stone and glass and these enormous murals, you know, and I had this feeling, I mean, it sounds a little maybe trite to say, but I knew at that point I wasn't going to be a doctor or, a, you know, 
an attorney or an accountant or something. I just, that was just not in it for me. I was kind of just so enamored of that environment. And so anyway, years went by and I was in high school and I took an art class in high school and the teacher was had gone to Carnegie Mellon. Actually, she had multiple degrees. One of them was from Carnegie Mellon. And she really encouraged me to pursue art or design. And when I was talking about what kind of career I might like to have, she said, well, you know, you might think about architecture. And I really didn't know necessarily that much about it. Hmm. But that led me to start looking at architecture schools. And one of the things that I liked about Virginia Tech, which is where I went, which is where I ended up going, to architecture school was that their program was structured in such a way so that the first couple of years were more of something they called a design lab where yes. you were exploring design problems you weren't necessarily drafting buildings so i found that to be kind of interesting you know from a kind of exploratory creative kind of way and so for me, I was really fortunate. I, I started in that program and just successively became more and more interested in that to, to a point where, you know, I really couldn't imagine doing much else or anything yeah, else. Right. I mean, I, I, I like to cook. And so I could imagine maybe that might have been the other option for me, but I, I don't, I get such a pleasure from what I do and, and enjoy it in a way, I think that goes back to that kind of primal experience or exercise of drawing that for me is still the most exciting, interesting part of my job. I love that answer. Goodness. I love that. I love the fact that a, what is that there was a, a point where the, the size and the scope and everything else was so engaging when you were young yeah. And and that you got to recognize that there was something about there. There was some, there was yeah. magic in it. And had and, very supportive parents too. I mean, it's they didn't I mean, we didn't know any architects when, well, you know, when, I was when <laughs> they were not in create in a creative profession in a way, either of them. And so it was a little bit of a leap of faith, I think, on their part. But yeah. I I I really appreciate that they gave me the the support and the kind of leeway to do what it was I thought I wanted to do. And that mm. says something. I mean, I, you know, it, without a reference point and without a, any experience in, in architecture I, or design, I think that that was a real leap of faith for them. Well, I'm know, very but, grateful. Oh, I, it's incredible. <laughs> Everything to be grateful for in there, because it's incredible that when they had no reference point that, they, well, I, I observe this with other people. Sometimes they just abandon them to abandon kids to their own kind of devices to get there uh, because they don't have any way of knowing how to support it. They don't have anything that's of them to support it. And then on the other side of it, they go, well, yeah, that's a folly. Um, you know, like, how will you support yourself doing that? You know, it's like I'm going to be an actor. Right. And then on on the other part of it, it's like they must have had to take enough interest and care that you felt comfortable to keep moving as well. Because otherwise you have to kind of cut them off to get moving. And 
it yeah. clearly didn't happen. Well, I think they saw that how much I enjoyed it. And I think, you know, that's maybe, maybe was the key. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like I complained about having to go to art class or, you know, yeah, right. or said I didn't want to go or was tired or, you know, I mean, you know, whatever, whatever tactic one might have used to get out of it. You didn't use those. Yeah. That wasn't the case. No. And, and I would say, you know, leaping forward a little bit, even a little more to, you know, how I came to be at Bolin Sywinski Jackson, you know, it's funny years, years ago before, you know, before the internet, the AI, the local AI just... yeah, well, the <laughs> local AIA used to produce a brochure, you know, of a, like a firm directory of all the firms in town. And, you know, there was usually like a photo or two photos and then the contact information, right. Old school. And I remembered that I was, that was a resource somehow, or found out that was a resource somehow. And I was looking for a summer internship one year when I was in school, we were in a recession. So it was kind of difficult to find uh, a place that was taking a summer intern, a college student. And I remembered paging through the directory of AIA Pittsburgh. And there were all of these photos of you know, glossy buildings with, you know, um, with no, not a person in sight and big commercial buildings and not a person in sight, you know, and, and then there was this page for a firm that had three photos on it. And one of the photos was of a man on a tractor in the foreground yeah. and a house in the distance. And and then there was another photo of a very peculiar house that was dark green with red windows. And then the third project was a building at Carnegie Mellon University that I actually knew that was right on Forbes Avenue across the street from the St. Paul's Cathedral in Pittsburgh. And it was the strangest trio of projects and I thought, wow, that's, that's kind of interesting. This is a firm that put a photo up here with a man on a tractor and the house, you barely see the house, but you see this man on the tractor. They must need an intern. Who happened to be the client, by the way. I learned that many oh, years right. later. And anyway, it was an advertisement or the listing for Boland Sywinski Jackson. And so... I went to the office and talked with John Jackson. And as it turned out, they were not hiring for the summer. But a few years later, I was at my parents' house after graduating from Virginia Tech. And I was preparing to move to Chicago. I had a job with a small firm in Chicago and was kind of excited about, about being there. And I had a friend who was working at Boland Sywinski Jackson. And she called and she said, Hey, we are hiring. And I gave them your name because I remembered you mentioned the firm. So that. I went down and I talked to them and we had just won these two projects at the university of Washington in Seattle. And the firm was hiring. I was one of maybe five or six people that was hired or that was offered a job. And I, 
against kind of all of my intuition at the time I took it. And it's made all the difference in the world. I mean, I started in the Pittsburgh office in 1995, so 28 years ago, and worked on the School of Fisheries project at the University of Washington, and um, then had the opportunity to move to Seattle a few years later in 1999, and I've been here ever since. And at the time, our office here was very small. I think it was seven or eight people. You know, we had a tiny office that was associated with the, we'd won the competition to design Bill Gates home in over in Medina. And we were teamed with Jim Cutler. It's now Cutler Anderson architects. Uh And uh, we had, you know, as things go, you work on a project like that, and then you start to get these other projects. So we had a public library that we'd won the commissioned for, and we had a little house. So there were these three projects in the office, plus the two at the university. And, you know, the office just grew over the years. And so we're, we're 25 people here now. And, you know, all of our, each of our offices is about that size right now. Is that a a really nice size? It's a wonderful size. I think it's a, it's good because it allows you to be quite flexible and nimble. You can, you're enough, you have enough people and enough people with certain kinds of experience to be able to do very large projects, to be able to do civic projects, to be able to do very finely crafted things. Mm-hmm. And for someone like me to be involved with each team without feeling as though I'm being you know, stretched thin or pulled in too many different directions at once. Yeah. So I think it's a great size. Yeah. Well, obviously, like you say, like you've got that, you know, the firm has lots of offices around that size and it's obviously got some magic that kind of falls together at that, that size, because otherwise you'd make them 30 people or 40 people and, or you'd make them 15 people. It, right. It, it, yeah. There's something that kind of, revolves around it that it's I'm going to go back to when what I said right at the very start about the heart and soul of things it can keep Mm -hmm. it can keep you all as a a cohesive team or it can keep you all moving in the same direction yes and I imagine as and I'm guessing here but as business units because each office is probably seen as a business unit it means that you can see the diversity between each business unit. If you are looking at it as an overall looking down scope, you go, oh, okay, well, this one over here is doing this and these kind of projects and this one's doing this. And this is, you know, the the resources they need and this is the, you know, money that they make or turn over or whatever it is. You would have a lot of synergies that would be interesting between different offices that you can look at and go, hmm, okay. And there'd be a lot of learning at the same size, maybe. Am I guessing too far? Yes. No. <laughs> no. I don't think. So. I don't think you're guessing too far. But I. Do, I do think it's. It historically had been difficult for us to see ourselves as one firm because of that. I think the for us the big silver lining of the pandemic was that we all became, you know, forced to engage with the firm in the same way, which was virtually this way, right? And so all of a sudden, it allowed us to have 
all hands meetings for the first time because we could yeah. do a Zoom meeting. Right. We had never done that before. Right. We could do one firm staffing where we could share staff across projects much more freely than we had ever done before. And we could also do one firm marketing where we could leverage the skills and expertise of people in each office, regardless of what the geography was or, or regardless of the geography of the project. So it, it, it kind of took us a long time, I think, to get to that point. But I think what we see moving forward is that's one of our greatest strengths. Oh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly to have these, I don't want to say pods of people and pods of expertise in different spaces, mm -hmm. um, experiencing local nuances versus just national you know, or, or international yeah. pieces. There's something right. magical about that. That's right. Enough about business. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of your parents were, were drawers. They didn't draw. No. no. It's really interesting. So so somewhere that, that piece came. And when you said you drew more technically or more creatively? More creatively. I mean, my grandmother, who's still with us at 103. Well, and she still lives to her. She wow. still lives by herself too. She's quite a formidable person. She says that she remembers that I would draw things in a very detailed way. For instance, she remembers that I was drawing a bird and that I drew the feathers on the bird very in a very kind of detailed way when I was a young, you know, young boy. And so she, I think there have been these little, you know, remnants of me maybe being perceptive or having a, having the eye for detail or something like that, or capturing things that maybe you wouldn't necessarily see. So yeah. I, I, I was, I, I don't know exactly where it comes from, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't have did not have grandparents or relatives who were, you know, in any of the creative professions. Yeah. Um, wow. So it, it, it fascinates me. I, I grew up, my father's a fine artist. He's, mm. he's 95 now and he's pretty much stopped painting now, but he is a fine artist and I grew up around art and mm. around art materials you know, they, they were just always there. We, we, we always had pens, papers, paints, you know, whatever it was. And so I can't distinguish it from the rest of, 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 because I do something that's in the same kind of creative mode. Sure. I go, oh, yeah, I, I, it's a very narrow kind of track. It's like, you know, oh, there you go. Well, you, you go, were immersed in it, right? I mean, yeah. you were immersed in it. And yeah. My sister, on the other hand, is not a drawer, not an artist, and my younger brother is. He, he's a photographer, but he's he can draw and paint and, you know, all these things. And so not what was never expected, but 
we just kind of it was what we knew so it's kind of what we ended up doing we did something that was in that creative way like I did fashion design for years and you know it was just again that observation thing of you know maybe seeing something a little different from how other people saw it Mm-hmm. maybe i don't know i don't know how the people saw yeah. it i love that about you know you drew the feathers and <laughs> it goes back to what we were talking about before we started recording of there's a a depth of how you see things mm-hmm. and let's jump into say i was lucky enough in march or february march in was that 2002 Oh, 2022 sorry 2022 2022 2022 <laughs> to visit a project or multiple projects of Ray's actually in Jackson in Wyoming mm-hmm. and one of them well I could go on and on about lots of things one of them was the <laughs> Donovan house and yeah. we we had a discussion before we recorded around this making of place and, mm. and and making place yeah and what the place delivers when it's just a meadow mm. and you know which parts you focus on and, and all these different pieces i'd love to jump back into that discussion from my point of view amazing home of course and published and so you can go and find it as a listener very easily from my point of view, the thing that struck me most, and I'd love to take people back through this discussion, was I walked in and the the house has a, a I'm going to call it a stripe that's really undershooting it. It has it has a separation point through the middle, which is a ceiling of polished stainless steel, so it's a mirror piece, and that is really understating it. Go and look at the photos and everything else. But we went through this discussion of how it became and why it became and what it does for the place. And I'd love you to take them, take all the listeners back into there. So- yeah. Well, I'd be happy to. I mean, that's a project that, that and, and it came up earlier because, well, Adrian has visited. And it's called the Jackson Residence, by the way, on our website. So if you're right. interested, that's how to look it up. But it's, I was talking with the clients recently and the it's a husband and wife and they were talking about they've lived in the house now i think about eight years and they were saying how they still see or still find things that they that feel like they're new or discoveries for them that they never saw before the way uh, light comes in in a particular room or way a detail or reveal resolves itself around the house. And, and I was so, I mentioned to Adrian, I was so thrilled by that observation. You know, not only do you, you hope that your clients love the home that you live in, but in this instance, it was kind of continuously revealing itself to them, which I thought was really interesting, but the house, the approach, it has a very long driveway that descends down a slope and so you you look over the house towards the tetons and out over the snake river valley and it was a very large home and the idea was to 
try and slip it into the slope of the hill so that really you just saw one story building from above. And it has a green roof, landscaped roof, so it, it kind of melds with the landscape as you approach. And early, early, early on, when we'd asked our clients a little bit about their program, she mentioned that in their current, in their previous home, they had a little, little water fountain in the courtyard, and she found the sound of the water to be particularly pleasing, you know, soothing. And that was interesting. It wasn't, it wasn't said in a, I must have a fountain or I need to have a water feature of some kind. It was just, I find this sound particularly soothing and like it, find that I like it in the house. Kind of interesting. Mm. So the house is all about kind of how, how you get from here to there, right? So it's on slope, you enter on the top level and then you descend to the lower level. And we had this idea of organizing this stripe, as you described it, Adrian. <laughs> Sorry, um, a little undershot. <laughs> as a as an element of water and stone that kind of organized the house, kind of like a spine, in a way, made out of water. And and as the house began to take form, we recognized that maybe that felt like it wasn't quite enough. And so we had this idea that the combination of the water and maybe light or, or reflections might make that, that line through the house much more dynamic and maybe create a third thing or a third quality that we maybe couldn't anticipate. And so we made the ceiling over the this kind of line of water and stone mirrored. And what it does is throw these incredible reflections around the house. And, and depending on where the sun is and, and what time of day and, and the weather patterns, it can be quite dramatic or it can be quite subtle. And it's one of those things that they have come to see as kind of the, the defining part of the, of the house in a way and it sprung from the most kind of you know modest of comments in their program and so i think that's really fascinating i mean there are many other aspects to the project that we could talk about but you know the the notion of making a house where the experience starts when you enter the site and are quite far away from it to a series of, of kind of experiences and spatial experiences as you approach it and then move inside and how things are revealed. I mean, I, I feel like at its best, our work does that where it's your, you know, it's very experiential, immersive. And I think it, it, there's a, um, there's a series of kind of choreographed moments that happen. And yet it's also not formal. I would say that's it's also allows for there to be multiplicity of use. And they were telling me the other day how they've had um, musicians come and play music in the house. And it, it lends itself really well to that, which we didn't design it necessarily to be <laughs> a music venue, but somehow it performs well. So that's good. Unanticipated <laughs> things. 
that you Just never knew. A lucky side note. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think so. But it's Is great. It I mean, I you know, the project doesn't end when you when they move in and and no. you know, I mean, I think I think that's also something else that I've learned that the projects become part of your life and the people that you do the projects with and for become a part of your life. And so, you know, they were doing a, another project in Jackson right now. And I always stop in to see these folks and see the house. And it's, it's wonderful to have a kind of ongoing relationship that it doesn't just stop like, well, we're, you're not paying us anymore. We're not work. You know, the house yeah, we, is finished. We can't come by. And we we're only walking come by away. To, if we you know? come by to no, pick up checks. Not, it's not like that at all, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm, I'm quite ha happy that 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 there's a continuum, you know, that there that that if there's a continuous continuation of the relationship. Yeah. Oh yeah, and this goes back to something we were talking about earlier as well about people. One of the things I want to add to what you've just said is is they've had this home for seven years and they're still discovering its nuances mm. and the, I'm going to go back to the bird and the feathers, the feathers and oh. the form <laughs> and the structure of those feathers that are so deliberately placed within the home and they're still discovering those. And there's many yeah. probably years more of discovery. Yeah. The other thing that it did for me being in that house was once I discovered the ceiling, which was, I, I want to say, I'm, I'm hoping it was really early on in, in our time in the home. It was fairly early on. And it really put me in this state of questioning and, and trying to analyze why you'd done it. And until this morning or my morning, your afternoon, I didn't know that it was based off this trickle of water or this piece of water that was happening. And every time I moved through the house, I would look for what the ceiling gave me back and like, what, what did it add? And there is a, the most amazing view from this home, you know, Ray kind of brushed over it saying, you know, up the Snake River Valley and you know, the Tetons and stuff. The view is captivating. It would be very easy to be in this home and not notice the house because Ray's magic and he's known for this piece of magic which is is to make the landscape and the home and when you're in the home or even approaching the home like he described if you google ray you will find that there is this thread that keeps talking about his ability to design with the landscape falling into the home and the home falling into the landscape and this kind of oneness of of place as say you could walk into the home and you could be overwhelmed by the incredibleness of the view mm. and forget to look at the house and maybe because sure. you're in there with i don't know how many architects were in there that day but a lot mm. everybody's trying to discover why we've sat on a bus and being taken up this hill. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> trying to discover the magic that Ray's woven into the place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but beyond that, it, it, the house is still delivering to the people who have walked through the door for seven years, mm -hmm. and they're discovering it as they go, which is just, yeah. I think, is 
testament a to your your genius and then also your deliberateness and the part of the journey where it's about the people and the fact that seven years on you still go for a you know cup of coffee or a glass of wine mm-hmm. or whatever you will visit them yeah. and enjoy it with them um that says spades you know speaks in spades of how much yeah. you invest in it and we were talking earlier about the heart and soul of mm-hmm. projects and yeah. every project and what creates that and what creates that connection and we were talking also around the space and place and i'd love to go back to that because the minute somebody takes on a piece of land as an owner and they decide to build on it they're going to change it forever it it there's a there's a huge responsibility and well it can be taken lightly or it could just be dismissed there is a huge responsibility in that something is going to go there and it will alter that landscape and it will alter that piece of land and we were talking about the energetic feel of land and why this matters and how you're being i suppose true to the land and then also true to it the purpose you're giving it mm-hmm. one of the things ray was telling me was he visited that site four times at least more than four times but he was there in every season mm-hmm. and i'd love you to describe that as well being in that place well, in four seasons yeah. because it's a dramatic landscape that changes dramatically in four seasons it is it is and and i would say you know none of us do this alone so this Mm. house was a collaboration with certainly with peter bolin and also kyle phillips in in our office and many others but you know one of the things that i've always appreciated about peter who's been a wonderful mentor to me and many others in our practice is this um kind of trying to understand and get at the nuances of each place, what the spirit of each place is, and how to reveal and celebrate that through architecture. So the visiting of the site is something that we do, you know, that is like the very first thing that we ever want to do <laughs> is visit in person. You know, we you have clients sometimes who send you a bunch of photos or a video or something. It, it tells you some things, but not everything, certainly not everything. And then the visiting in multiple seasons or multiple times a day is also to understand the way the, the place changes throughout the day, throughout the season, throughout the year. And how the wind might be different, how the shadows might be different. And, and again, I think, you know, there are computer programs that can tell you a lot of that, but Hmm. there's a kind of visceral experience sensation that comes from being there. And, and it, it allows you, I think, to dream a little bit about what you're seeing and what might be right. Hmm. And so 
usually when we visit a site, there there have been a lot of drawings, Adrian, on the hood of the rental car afterwards, <laughs> you know, or on the tablecloth at lunch or breakfast or whatever yeah. the following day. And I think because we're trying to capture the essence of what that place is all about, and somehow then that becomes the 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 key to the design scheme yeah but it it really is i I mean i it sounds so sort of trite to say it i think but it really is about being there in person and experiencing everything about the site and you you had an interesting insight earlier you said because there even if it's not immediately apparent you you can sense which parts of the site might be calmer or what parts of the site might be more chaotic or more frenetic um what the sounds are like you know the wind rushing through the you know the aspen trees on one side of the site or you know the patterns that the clouds shadows that the clouds make on the valley floor there so i i think that all of those are kind of really rich ingredients for the process of making architecture and and we we just don't take that lightly you know and I, I i mentioned earlier too that i'm equally fascinated by sites where that that are not untouched or that are not unbuilt that that oftentimes there are things that others have done to the site <laughs> that might be <laughs> might have some logic and reason to them or other times might have been done in a really haphazard and you know foolish way so yeah. I think it's really that can almost be a more interesting challenge sometimes to oh. <laughs> to unravel that or or enhance it depending on your point of view and I, I mentioned we're working on this project in British Columbia right now and there's a there's a rather you know ramshackle cabin and some other outbuildings that are built on the on the site and. It, it was a process for me of understanding how that got to be there mm-hmm. and then trying to decide if it was strong enough to stay or if there was a real reason or logic behind staying or if it, in effect, had kind of passed its useful life and should be something else. Yeah. So I think that's that's also interesting. You know, you're trying to like, you're trying, it's it's almost like you're 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 trying to discover the the unearth the past and uh, the archaeology of the place and things like that yeah a hundred percent like that point of that it's maybe been pre-used you know that that something's happened i'm originally from new zealand and if you think of new zealand was a forested country and pretty much the early settlers cut all the trees down and turned it into a pastured country and you go oh yeah, exactly you go hmm. so the sites have had something australia most of it was never properly forested but there's like as game lots of those kind of things where you know it was made into pasture and that destabilizes land and does all kinds of things changes the flora and fauna on it changes the weather patterns around it does multiple things when you get to that site 
this sounds really weird, but allowing it to kind of speak to you, allowing it to kind of be and, and soak it in. And I think of, you know, like your one in Jackson there where in the winter with deep snow cover, of course, you soak up so much sound. Whereas, say, like in the summer, when the wind is rushing through the trees, we've got leaves on them. But in the winter, we don't have any leaves on them. Mm -hmm. And so we get not only views, but we get sounds. And then suddenly in the spring, we would end up with all the start of all the, the crickets and the, you know, the, the, the bugs and beetles and things like that, that are now filling the, the underlying state of the place with noise. And then the birds that that attracts and this keeps dropping in there's these different pieces that drop in and as they drop into the site you get to experience a little bit more of it and you find a little bit more magic and in finding this magic you start to it informs you of what it needs as much as you inform of, of what you want to do and when it does have something else already on it I always think it's the most fabulous thing. And I go back to talking to Tom Kundig and he goes, give me the ugliest thing you've got and I'll have a play with it and see if I can make something beautiful mm -hmm. from it. And I go, again, this kind of thing of going, because, because it's there, then why is it there? And then what is it doing and how is it done? And it may be right or wrong. It, it may be either or. It, well, you and I were chatting about how I think as a, as a world we're, you know, reaching this point where, you know, we'll, we'll be forced to contend with mm. re reusing, reimagining, recycling, upcycling our buildings in ways that we don't even know or could predict now. So I think, you know, Tom is, is correct in that you might look at an existing building or an existing thing and say, boy, we should just tear it down. But sometimes I find that's a kind of knee jerk reaction. And the, you know, the, the opposite one is, Hmm, I wonder if there's enough of something here to turn it into something extraordinary or special or a hybrid that could suit something yeah. that's, you know, happening in the future. And so I think that we're all as architects and people in the, you know, design industry going to be faced with that as resources get more scarce and as the, you know, costs to build continue to, to climb. I think there's going to be an, an, even an increased look at reuse, adaptive reuse and renovation. You already see it. Happening. I, th I think you're right. And I think it needs to happen as much as anything else, just from a sustainability point of view. Mm -hmm. And we have to embrace our materiality along the way as well, so that we we need the sustainability, but we need the materiality that is going to nurture its occupants and right. the form that nurtures its occupants as well. And we're at a lovely, I suppose, point where what wasn't taken care of needs to be taken care of now mm -hmm. and in doing that then anybody who's in this architectural profession is 
lucky enough to be able to be a part of that change and be a part of that placemaking and journey, mm-hmm. which, you know, like I, I've worked in fashion, fashion's fun. It's, it's over and, you know, it's over in six months. It, it, it maybe it lasts in a wardrobe for 10 years or something, but built structures tend to have a lot, lot longer lifespan and a lot more impact on something. And not only visually to look at, but also to experience and be inside. And, um, you know, ultimately we're creating shelter. And that's our first thing that we're creating. We're creating shelter. And that brings security and different feelings and stuff that come with it. Then the responsibility to that, A, to the place and the, the, the land and then to the occupants and, I was talking with one of my team the other day and she said to me something around about what the client wants. And I said, hmm, and kind of, I I almost dismissed what the client wanted with the way I answered her with my, hmm. And she kind of looked at me and I said, before we work on what the client wants, let's look at what the land wants and went through just this little journey of, you know, this is why we're, we're doing this and this is why we're engaging it this way. Because the client, once we get it right for the land and we understand the land, then we can actually deliver the, what the client wants and they're going to be on a path of discovery. And you, you made a comment before about, you know, there's lots of drawings. This, whether they're on the rental car, you know, or whether they're, <laughs> I, I draw a lot on the shower, on the shower glass in the shower. I like, sure, yeah, that 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 could fit, or that would work, or this would be a story, or this is how it works. And there's lots. It's harder of, to reference later. <laughs> much, much. <laughs> Most of it's not worth keeping, just quietly. <laughs> but you know, like just this thing of blocks and masses and things, thoughts and what am I seeing and all the rest. It's like with that, this journey of discovery, if you turn up to, you know, to a client with one kind of scheme and the client goes, I love it. And I've, I've had this happen before and I go "Mm," like this. And they'd kind of look at me and I go, I just want to go through all the things that aren't right about it with you. (laughs) (laughs) And they look at me and I'll go, it's a journey. We have to discover so much more. Mm -hmm. This is an idea. And yes, it looks somewhat formed, but it's an idea. It isn't the outcome. The outcome's further down this path. And yes, if we were genius enough to get it all right on the first one, we can come back to that. But we weren't, trust me. <laughs> I think it's, you know, our friends that we were in Jackson with, Todd Williams and Billy Chen, oh. they talk about, you know, there's the slow food movement and they've talked often about slow architecture. And I think what you describe, Adrian, is this process of kind of refinement and evolution of a, of a design that's part of 
that's part of the design process, but also I think part of working in collaboration with your clients and others. And all of that is really rich. Those are rich ingredients or, you know, leavening things that kind of lift up the project beyond what any one of us could do alone. So I, I find that to be really interesting that you, you never quite hit on it totally a hundred percent right away that there's this natural process of evolution. And sometimes it's quite brisk, you know, you have a project that has a very, you know, aggressive schedule. And then sometimes this project that I'm working on in Jackson now, the clients are not in a hurry and it's really a, a pleasure to be able to take our time and explore different things. And sometimes you, as you point out, you discover things that you don't wish to pursue, Yeah, but they help to validate maybe other things that you are doing that feel more sound as a result of exploring these these you know avenues that mm -hmm. that don't kind of resonate or don't quite feel as authentic so i i find that to be really interesting too i i tend to be a little bit of an impatient person generally and so i love that the 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 process has taught me a lot of patience and then of course you also have clients who want to move very quickly yes. and you know, want to start digging tomorrow and so that's a that's a, that's another you know, that's a kind of another side to the, to the conversation. And by Christmas. Right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I think, I think one of the, still one of the most fascinating things for me is that process of, you know, at the beginning of a project, when you're trying to understand the nature of the people involved, you're trying to understand the nature of the land and the landscape and the site and the place, and you're trying to understand the, the material aspect or the craft of it all. You know, I, I, we designed a project for a couple who were originally from Tasmania in a town called Canmore, which is just outside of Banff. And I showed you the images. Yes, I, I'm, I'm yeah. running it through my head as we're speaking. Yeah, well, it was yeah. in. It was featured in Arc Record last month, which was I really saw nice. that. one of I the featured houses. Yeah. yeah, but I I was reminded that when we first visited the site, it was it did not reveal itself immediately. You know, it 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 was in a residential development, and our clients are very accomplished mountain climbers um and very accomplished and hikers and they they wanted to live kind of amongst the canadian rockies so this particular site was appealing to them because they could see many of their favorite climbs and peaks from that site but i didn't really see it you know we pulled up and there was this kind of veil of trees along the street and i remember thinking oh okay there's you know it's wooded that's nice and kind of went in and there was this sort of narrow you know flat zone parallel to the street and then probably an eight meter bank like a rocky bank there you're telling me this and then you know i remember thinking oh well that's that's interesting you know but 
I don't know, is it a long skinny house here along the street? You know, it's up against this bank. That's kind of, you know, they said, oh, no, 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 no. We, we have to climb up to the top of the bank. Okay. So we climb up to the top of the bank. And as we're getting up there, you realize that you're surrounded by the three sisters peaks. And then from the end of the site, you look down the entire Bow River Valley. And it was one of the most interesting experiences that I'd had because it was like they, your, our experience of visiting the site that first day was exactly the path that they would take through any kind of house to see those views, right? And because they were climbers, they were not worried about stairs or, you know, I mean, they, yeah. they, so we, we essentially made the house in kind of three parts. There's a, there's a building that sits on the lower part and there's a building that sits on the upper part. And then they're connected by a bridge that kind of cuts into the hill at one end. And they said that the reason that they hired us was because we were the first architect who didn't tell them that you had to live down below or up above. You couldn't do both. Oh, my. And I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, that, I mean, it seemed obvious to me that if you could make that happen, that would be the way to do it, um, to have the best of both environments. And then you have a house that, you, you know, that for mountain climbers was about this kind yeah. of vertical scaling the the hill every every day. So it, I, I find that kind of thing to be really exciting and really interesting. And one of my favorite parts of of what we do <laughs> is trying to discover that kind of thing and I, then make I it happen. I remember you describing the project to me when, when I was in the studio with you and looking at it and. It, it's a it, it's a it's a lovely house i mean you you take it on scale of say <clears throat> something like the house in jackson and it's a very different scale a very different kind of client yeah. and the way that when, when it was described to me what what you would had done and where you were trying to get to and what they were trying to get to it engages you and you, you, you've, you know, for me, you know, I saw your mind just ran to, well, of course you need to see this, but then there's also this part that we need to be able to use as well. Yeah. And where most people possibly would have got stuck with the fact that meant that they had to transverse from one piece to the other, you know, through to, to get to climb the hill, they were going to climb the hill at some point anyway. Mm -hmm. That was going to happen regardless, whether you put the house at the bottom or whether you put the house at the top, make no difference. The, 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 the hero was at the top. And if they were going to climb it anyway, then you gave them the ability to live on their full site and, mm -hmm. and have their magic. And I, I remember looking through the pictures with you and, you know, that description of being able to see what they could see with the th those three sisters and of that place, you got the best out of the site. But not only that, you got the best for them as people. But how easy would have it been to 
um, drive away as such. Not that you would have driven away, but like just to go hmm, to to very quickly define. Oh well, it has to be this, and yet in the discovery of the site, you actually end up falling in love with what what it has to offer, and then you play and it I back think, around. And I think it came. I mean, it to go back to what we were talking about before about the process. You know, it that wasn't the. I mean, the eventual scheme, the one that's built, wasn't the first scheme that we came up with. And the, the journey to get there, we spent a lot of time having things staked out on the site because, you know, knowing of their appreciation and, and connection to this place we knew we had to get it right. So we were surveying and resurveying and then testing heights of roofs and roof eaves. And, you know, and, and that is also has its own kind of pleasure, you know, the rigor, the technical rigor that comes with achieving that. But that, that was the kind of yang to the, to yeah. the yin, ying in the beginning. And, and just having the, I'm always so proud of our team when we get to the site and they've got it staked out and it feels good or you tune it a little bit and then it's, you know, it feels really good. And then when they start to do the framing and you start to see that kind of come even a little bit closer to completion, you say, oh boy, we really got this one just right. Isn't that a lovely point it's of so satisfying? <laughs> it's yeah. so satisfying that, that all the effort pays off. And it, I find it's not related to the scale of the project either. No. no. That, you know, you have larger projects or smaller projects and they require the same focus and the same but, kind of dedication and rigor. To I, I think that rigor is really, a, and, and the yin-yang part of it is really great little descriptions. The rigor is, you know, I, I always say to my team, like, we need to be relentless in in breaking what we have imagined. Mm -hmm. um, if we think we've got it right, then try and pull it apart. And yeah. we may just leave it as it is, but just try and pull it apart. Just no, there's a testing and a kind of yeah. you know plumbing for the best solution or yeah. or mining for the best solution. You know that I think is really important. I think otherwise it. You you can you can get a little lazy about it in a every, in a way. Every you know? every scheme you drew could be built, right? Every one of them could be built. That's that's why it's discovery. And the other one that you when you were saying about the people from Jackson and her telling you about the water and how that felt, and that was in Illinois is you can only get so much discovery from asking very deliberate questions. Mm -hmm. The other comes right. from being in their presence and their nuances of how they behave and the casual conversation that they tell you about some story or experience that they've mm -hmm. had 
and there's a little piece that clicks in your head and you go, well, hold on, I've just seen a thread. I've just I've just uncovered a thread of some feeling that get, this gives them. And and there, there is some, it, it takes time and go back to, you know, Todd and Billy, it takes time. And that time that. can be, it, that time can be pressure cooked. There's no doubt. It yeah. can be pressure cooked. It rely it relies on both people or both parties turning up and showing up with an openness more than to once. discovery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, more than, more than once. once. Uh, have a, um, uh, okay. You know, I well, I was just going to say I love working with people, and I'm I'm always intrigued when you know once one of my favorite projects was one that I did earlier in my career at. at at kicking horse mm -hmm. and it was a husband and wife with some children and the husband both really great people the husband was an attorney and he he had his program very you know i said like dialed into the inch you know he would say ray we need a dining room that is 13 foot six by 18 feet eight you know we need a living room that is you know all the rooms were kind of spelled out like that and his wife wrote two sentences and the sentences were, I would like the house to feel like a 1970s James Bond ski chalet period. That was it. But, but that James Bond grew up and had kids and it wasn't one of those things or the other. It was the fact that you got them together. Um, and um, so you had the discipline and the rigor of the one, and you had this dream of the other. Um, that is a kind of powerful combination for, oh, you know, yeah. inspiring design. And I, I, I've always used that as an example of how, you know, it, couples or families or clients or, you know, a single person, you know, they're getting at the heart and soul, back to use your phrase, of what they really desire, not just what they need, because those are two very different things, mm -hmm. um, is, is part of what I find really interesting about what we do. And, and oftentimes we, we ask the clients if there are more than one to do a little narrative separately and not yeah. show each other until yeah. you know after they're done and and that often reveals some interesting things too lots of overlap sometimes yeah. not and and how to how to coalesce those things into a scheme you know i'm i'm fascinated by that and it's never you can never do it the same way twice. It's never because no human is the same or no couple is the same. No family is the same. So yeah. I find that to be really interesting. I was, I was also going to say, I think that part of the reason that our firm has, I mean, we've been primarily talking about residences, yes. private residences, yeah. but you that's know, my we, fault. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's okay. I was going to say one of the things that I love about our practice is that we do such a variety of work. And 
both, you know, community buildings and buildings at universities and, and, you know, schools, colleges, and universities. And I was going to say one of the things that I like about campus building or a building that's, that's, you know, for education or part of a campus is that there's always a context that you're responding to, um, which oftentimes is different than a, a built context that you're responding to that is different than some of the wild landscapes of the West that I've we've been talking about. You know, oftentimes there's a material palette that you're responding to or historic fabric of campus that you're reinterpreting or interpreting. And I, I think those are equally as fascinating as a challenge. We did a project at Carnegie Mellon University a few years ago for a makerspace that did not have a site. They invented a site between a bunch of other buildings. And so we made this building like connective tissue between all the different departments that it was serving. And it had to, it had to fit in and amongst um, three or four other buildings in a way that was almost surgical, you know, wow. and, and they were all historic buildings by the way around it with by Henry Hornbossel and how we navigated that, I think, without resorting to mimicking the older buildings, you know, I think is also really successful. So it's it's applying the same kind of values and rules and and appreciation for for the design process, but at a different scale. And and I'm I'm fascinated by that. And I think I think that's that's certainly one of the distinguishing aspects of our our firm. Yeah. It, it really fascinates me in the sense that you're engaging the the same the same principles the same actions that you might be you know between in a residential model, but what you you're doing is you don't have you have a client that's a, a, a driving force, but they are not as driven. Or they're not as single-minded about their own outcome. Right. They're they're looking broadly, and so your your client is actually, whilst it's you know one person paying a bill or a, a firm paying a bill or something, your client mm -hmm. is actually all the people who may use that mm -hmm. in the next two hundred years, yeah, or more, maybe who knows, but mm -hmm. definitely in the next. 20 30 40 50 years definitely yeah. and that's your responsibility that you're playing with is that how that building or buildings the existing ones and the new one plays together I, i'm i'm with you i there's this journey in it that requires mm -hmm. you to think in so many multifaceted ways and imagine so many different outcomes from it as time and need changes, yet the building will still be cons be constant through that time and need. Its use may change slightly and those things 
but it's the building will still be there through that. It's yeah, it's amazing to think like that, and then also to try and expand the thinking to meet so many people that you're meeting so many points of criteria that creates <laughs> that that you create in architecture. You know, you create in a built structure. I could get lost into that kind of um, broad thinking really easily and then trying mm -hmm. to find the constants so that you solve the problem. And then you've kind of got to go, yeah, okay, I've got all those baselines. Now let's be the artist. Mm -hmm. Now let's Now let's forget all that and remember that that bird with the feathers flies. <laughs> I'm going to regret using that example. I think, I think. I think it was a great example. Uh, no, you know, it's, it's, it is, I think for us as a practice, it is we have never specialized in one building type. And instead, we thrive on looking at multiple building typologies and different types of clients. And, and if, if anything, we're interested in working with people who are, maybe their organization is at an inflection point. Maybe they are looking to transform their business or institution or environment in some way. And so for us, the, you know, we've never approached our work as, well, we need to do 15 of something, you know, or 30 of something mm -hmm. in order to be considered experts. You know, it's, it's more that we, we like the kind of creative challenge that comes from doing things we've never quite done before or or reinterpreting something in the context of a new place, new client, new yeah. material. So that's kind of what really, I think, fuels our enthusiasm for this. You know, it isn't to, I mean, we, we obviously love working with, with people and love doing repeat projects and all those kinds of things, but it isn't, it isn't, we're, we are motivated by the, the, creative collaboration with with our clients and if if you had a client that you're doing a repeat project for um it would be unlikely that they would take you from say one side of the country to the other side of the country and then turn around and go we want the same thing over here as you did over there <laughs> Right. Well, yeah. certainly the work with Apple and yeah. oh, of now course. With, yes. with other clients like mm. Blue Bottle Coffee or Everlane or, you know, some of the city national banks that we're doing. You know, the, the interest, interesting thing there is to find out what the important threads and elements are and reinterpret them each time or reassemble them each time in a way that feels authentic to that place and that community. And yeah. that is a really interesting challenge too. I I think if there's anything that, you know, that working with clients like those I've mentioned um, mm. in, in retail environments or, 
or multiple locations is that you that you're not you're not just rolling out you know x number of stores for a certain reason and we we also tend to do a lot of feasibility studies for different locations to test out whether yes. they would be well suited or not and that's was one of the things we always appreciated about apple is that they um they were quite willing to take a big leap on a lot of spaces that didn't on the on the didn't immediately seem like they would be primed for success they were quite interested in in seeing the challenge and seeing if they could overcome it that's neat that's really neat and yeah and, and that's it. that's it. Part of their brand DNA. That's yes. that's that's who that's they right. are and what they are as a company. Yeah. And so that's they right. approach, yeah, they're true and authentic. They approach it that way, no matter where they go. Yeah, I like that. I have a a last question for you. I've got two different okay. ones, and I'm going to give you a choice of which one you answer. I'm. I do have a little bit of a. We're a little past the time. I hate yeah. to say that, but I'm I'm running out of time here. Yep. I have a, okay. another meeting I need to run to, but. I'll give you. We could just set up another time, Adrian. We will. We will do that. <laughs> we will do that for sure. Last question then is: I'm going to give you one of them. Your favorite space in your own home and why? Oh, well. We live in an old house, 1925. And it's really the the reason that we bought the home was because of the neighborhood. And we are half a block from Volunteer Park, which is one of the parks designed by the Olmstead brothers here in Seattle. And I think of it as the you know, we, we have a very small city lot. And so we, I think of the park as our backyard. So we have a dog. I walk him through the park at least once a day. There's a beautiful brick water tower. There's a reservoir. There's an incredible sculpture called Black Sun by Noguchi. And so I, I, it's, it's not in my own house, but I think of the park and the park is kind of my favorite space. So it's adjacent to my house. But that is really the 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 favorite. And the reason is because it it's always changing. And there are these incredible kind of micro landscapes. There are redwoods in the park. There are big fields for playing, for concerts. There are you know, there are beautiful vistas and views and and this promenade that runs down the center of it. And so for me, being there and it's at one of the high points of the city, so you can actually look down to the skyline from there. It's just a really special kind of dynamic place. And so I, asso I associate it maybe in a very egotistical way with my own house. <laughs> so, you know, I can walk you know half a block to the park and that's that's like my favorite space and that's why because it's it, it is the yard that you know that we yeah. don't have and and it gives you a feeling of maybe 
freedom respite, or respite, respite yeah, from right. this, the city. You know, we live in a dense city neighborhood and and having this space where your neighbor's house isn't, you know, yeah. 12 feet yeah. away from you is kind of a nice thing. And so it, it's kind of a, you know, sometimes we call it the back 40, you know, <laughs> let's go, let's go take a walk in the back 40. But that's my, that's that. my, that's my favorite space. I Not love it. necessarily inside. My no, it's, now. it's great. It's great because um, it actually just goes right back to everything else that we discussed about placemaking and being in places and creating places and spaces in nature. And it just, it, it just, it went full circle as to who you are and why that <laughs> landscape matters so much to you. It does. <laughs> I just yeah, love that. Ray, thank you so, so much for your time. Thank I you. I really appreciate Adrian. it. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. We um, should have started recording 45 minutes earlier because I feel like there was have. some good, you know, really it, good uh, conversation I, there too. It's very. <laughs> we always have a good, I think a very good... It's very easy, I think, for us to kind of talk and riff on certain things and kind of go down different different lines of to discover, thought. Yeah, to un- yeah. peel it back and discover. And um, yeah. look, I hope for all the listeners that they get to enjoy this journey of uncovering Ray's genius and, and his passion, his absolute passion for what he does and the way he approaches it with rigor, like, and... A, a, a wide, broad maturity and no ego for somebody that should or could <laughs> stand very tall on an ego of achievement, but no oh ego, boy. just just feet on the ground and real about how he approaches everything that they take on. Right, yeah. fabulous man. Yeah. So so well, enjoyed thank our you, conversation. Adrian. Thank I look you. Look forward I to too. talking again soon. Yeah, definitely. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, If it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. 
Now while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.